Today's episode is brought to you by the Calvary Global Network International Conference. The theme of the 2021 CGN International Conference is the way of Jesus. This past year has presented challenges that transcend society and culture, but it didn't change the mission of God to rescue his alienated creation via the person and work of Jesus Christ. As we press into the way of Jesus, we want to approach culture the way that Jesus did. Concepts like human dignity, justice, wisdom, and power are at the forefront of conversations in our culture like never before. Are we understanding and engaging in this dialogue from a worldly definition of these ideas, or do we operate according to the model, message, and method that Jesus gave us in the Gospels? Joining us this year as we dialogue about the way of Jesus are Gavin Ortland, author and missiologist Alan Hirsch, John Jenkins, pastor of First Baptist Church in Glen Arden, Maryland, author and YouTube host Beckett Cook, missionary and Bible College Director Pam Markey, and many more. Sessions will feature live dialogues and Q&As with the speakers, and our interactive, in-person, and online specialized training tracks focus on various aspects of ministry leadership, including the posture of the church in an age of hate, the way of Jesus in a sexually broken culture, spiritual health for spiritual leadership, women in the way of Jesus, and more. The CGN International Conference will be online and in person at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa from June 28th through July 1st. Registration is open to pastors, church leaders, lay leaders, volunteers, men, women, anyone called to serve Christ and His Kingdom. To register and for more information, visit our website at conference.calvarychapel.com. That's conference.calvarychapel.com. We hope to see you there. and Jasmine Allnut. And we're in studio with another woman worth knowing. Yeah, a couple women worth knowing. That's we're right. Here. Yes, we've got two women <laughs> worth knowing. And what sets these women apart too is that they were both African-American mm-hmm. and they both served in their the medical field. Medical right? field um, right around the um, Civil War. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a time of like heightened prejudice. So that even makes what they did even more remarkable. Last week, I featured the two Rebecca's, the first two female physicians, black physicians in the United States. And the first one was Rebecca Crumpler. And I fell in love with her. And then there was Rebecca Cole, who was uh, called Sunshine. That's how her demeanor <laughs> was described. And I just love that. But today, I want to feature Louise Celia Fleming. And she is very remarkable for a lot of reasons. And I think the more you hear about her, the more you'll get excited about her. So she was born January 28th, 1862, and she was born into slavery. The Rebecca's were not born into slavery, albeit Rebecca Crumpler married two men who had both been former slaves. But Louise was actually born into slavery. And she grew up on a plantation near Jacksonville, Florida. Her owners were ardent Baptists and were said to treat Louise and her mother well to the degree that they gave their names to Louise and her mother. But it's a little bit suspect because there's no father and there's no mention of a father. And the fact that Colonel Fleming, on whose plantation they were, gave his name 
to Louise's mother. Oh, interesting. And okay. to Louise is a little suspect. Yes, a little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit um, suspect. Not only that, but Louise's mother, her name is not known and was never registered. However, Colonel Fleming recognized that Louise was very, very intelligent. And so he made sure that Louise had an education. Interestingly enough, their education was at the Bethel Baptist Church, which had a school. Now, before the Civil War, Louise's mother and the other slaves of Colonel Fleming used to go to the same church, which was Bethel Baptist Church. It was fully integrated before the Civil War, which is strange. There were 40 white people and 250 black people, according to the registry, in 1859. And now three years later, of course, Louise was born. And so as a child, she went to the Bethel Baptist Church. But we know that something happened in 1865, which was the Civil War. It was wrapping up there. Yep. Mm -hmm. It was a big deal, Mm -hmm. obviously. So while Louise was getting her education, she actually had a nickname, which was Lulu. And she graduated at the top of her class at Bethel Baptist Church. And she enrolled at Shaw University and was the valedictorian of her graduating class in 1885. So Louise Celia Fleming is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But Louise knew that she wanted to be a missionary. From the time she went to church as a little girl, she dreamed of being a missionary. However, up to this time, this organization, which is the Women's Baptist Foreign Missionary Service, had never, ever had a black missionary. (laughs) They had never supported an African-American as a missionary or even thought of sending an African-American out to the mission field. So Louise started a campaign of writing them letters and expressing her desire to be a missionary and why she wanted to be a missionary and how the desire came to her. And she talked about her passion for Jesus and to share Jesus with the people in Africa. And so she finally, because of her persistence and because of all her letters, she won a interview with the Women's Baptist Foreign Missionary Service. So she goes to interview with them and she tells them why she desires to go there and to share Jesus and educate the people in Africa. And after the interview, she receives a letter of acceptance and she finds out that she's been assigned to serve in the Congo. And this is big, again, because she's the first African-American missionary to ever serve in the foreign mission field from the Baptist. Oh, that's interesting. Right. And she goes to the Congo. So what's Mm. interesting about going to the Congo is this is exactly where Helen Roosevelt will go later. But the trailblazer into the Congo is this American Louise Celia Fleming. So it's a very difficult journey to get to the Palabala station in the Congo. Imagine going there in those days because it would be by ship and then either by, you know, cart or horseback or walking to try to get to this. Because as we know, the, the Congo is, you know, 
closer to the interior. And we remember that Helen Rosevear, when she went, she had to cross Lake Victoria. Right. And so this is not easy travel at all. And so she goes uh, to the Congo, which is now, of course, called Zaire. So she was super good with her correspondence back to the Women's Baptist Foreign Missionary Service. And they loved her letters. I mean, she became one of their favorite missionaries because she was so good at writing. And she described the place where she was serving. And she said, this is a second station from the coast. In the stations above, we get our supplies. We are on a plateau 1,700 feet above sea level and are in the clouds up until a late hour some mornings. The mornings have been very cold here now, as this is the cold season. The community has made it seem like home, and this has been a pleasant surprise to me. I have never felt better than since I've come here. Our family of children consists of nine girls and 18 boys. I have full charge of the girls and enjoy them very much. We are having a new house go up, one end of which is to be used as a school and a chapel, and the other to be the girls' room and my room. She describes the typical days and the mission with great clarity and understanding for the people who had sent her there. So she makes it very clear what it's like, and she's very descriptive in her letters. And she concluded every letter with, the Lord give us patience to train them. Mm -hmm. So she actually talked about how that the young men and the boys were easier to train because they wanted to know the Lord. And she said once they got saved, they were so agreeable to the message and to learning. But she said the girls were a little squirrelier, my word. And she asked them to pray <laughs> like for her squirrely. that the Lord would give her a good strategy um, to first win the girls to Jesus and after winning them to Jesus to be able to educate them. Because she found that um, Jesus was a key component uh, to whether the boys and girls were willing to learn. So... She was able, with the support of the Women's Baptist Missionary Organization, to send three students to Shaw University. Now, this is interesting because um, later on, when it becomes, you know, the Belgian Congo, they don't want any of the Congolese to receive a higher education. Now, at the time, there's a young woman named Etsy Carolina, and she's very, very intelligent. And she's an orphan, and she lives with her half-sister, who was very, very cruel to her after their father died. So her just her half-sister just turned on her and was so mean. And Louise sought to save her from a really, really bad situation. So Louise went to the king, King Nosa, and she got permission for Etsy to go to the United States with her brother and to get an education. Well, that was, of course, until the king saw how beautiful Etsy Carolina was. Then he reneged on his promise and said, no, she is to become my bride and she can't go. So Louise had to convince the king again to let her go to the United States, which wasn't easy because he was giving up a wife. And so at the same time, 
that Etsy and her brother, and her brother's name was Henry Stevens, were going to the United States. Henry Stevens had a friend named Robert Walker. I think these are names that they actually took after they came to the United States because they're very American names. Yeah, definitely. But Robert Walker had been one of King Noso's slaves. And King Noso had been super, super cruel to Robert Walker. So cruel that Robert Walker had run away from King Noso. He couldn't take the cruelty anymore. Well, King Noso caught him and, you know, was oppressing him even worse. And Louise, again, interceded for Robert Walker and interceded with the king and said, please, he's intelligent. Let him be educated. And so she was able to get Henry Stevens, Robert Walker, and Etsy Carolina all to the United States and all to Shaw University. And this is where those wonderful Baptist women yep. of the, you know, the American Baptist women of the Foreign Missionary Board come in because those women raised money to support and pay for the education of Etsy and of Henry and of Robert. Later, Louise Fleming sailed to England to talk to Dr. Guineas, and she begged him to write out the grammar for the Congolese so they could have like an alphabet and a written language. She was so persuasive that he came and he actually studied the language and wrote it out so they could read. Louise was having great success in the Congo when suddenly she was struck down by a debilitating disease, and she had to return to the States. She was so great because she absolutely loved serving in the States. However, while she was recuperating, Louise suddenly realized how much the people in the Congo needed doctors. And since she had no money, she spoke to the American Baptist Missionary Society, those great women. And after Speaking with her, they decided they want to also pay her tuition to the Women's Medical College in Philadelphia. Oh, there that is again, that medical college in Philly. That's right. So even though she had graduated from Shaw College, now she's getting a second degree from the medical college. And she graduated in 1895 as the second African-American woman to graduate from the Women's Medical College in Philadelphia, Rebecca Cole being the first Mm. and now Louise being the second. In fact, it's interesting because at one point, Louise was credited as being the first woman when somebody said, no, uh, not so fast, Rebecca (laughs) Cole. But that's because so little is written about Rebecca. Petitioned the Baptist board to send her back to the Congo when she graduated. And that asked that they also support the crown prince of Palabala, who was a trained carpenter and farmer, to assist her in the mission work among his own people. So she returned to the Congo on October 2nd, 1895, as a fully qualified doctor. This time she was assigned to Irubu in the upper Congo, and there she provided medical care to the people. The work was daunting and overwhelming because these people had never had a medical doctor. They had relied on witch doctors. So now here's a doctor who is actually curing their you know, diseases and helping them with everything. And I don't know if you remembered this, but with, I'm sorry, with Helen Rosevere, she had to also study about hippopotamus bites, about oh, yeah. snake bites. Bizarre things. Right. Yep. And to uh, be able to identify all these snakes <laughs> and what anti-venom to give. So the same was true of Louise Fleming. So these people had never had a medical doctor before. 
And so they were all coming for almost any injury they could possibly think of, whether it was spears or wild animals or snakes. She also began to train the Congolese at Bolingi so that they could treat the people themselves because she realized if I leave, they don't have anyone. So I've got to train up people. So um, during this time, this is the sad part. Louise mm. contracted the African sleeping sickness Ooh. and shortly before her second term. So she hadn't even been able to be there that long. And she did not want to leave the Congo, but because of her condition and the fact that it continued to worsen, she had to. She was placed in a hospital in Philadelphia close to the medical school she attended. Her illness took a turn for the worse when she came back to Philadelphia and she died on June 20th, 1899 at only 37 years old. 37? 37. She did so much in those 37 years. Isn't that incredible? Wow. Okay, who do you have for us? What a life. Well, (laughs) we've got one more gal here that we want to tack in. Can't overlook her because we've been talking also, obviously, about doctors, but also nurses, right? And so I want to talk about the first... African-American woman nurse. nurse. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Female nurse. And her name was Mary Eliza Mahoney. So she was born in 1845. So, yeah, we're we're still around the Civil War. She obviously became an adult towards Mm -hmm. the end of that time. Where Uh, was she born? Where was she born? Yes. She was born in Dorchester, Massachusetts. Okay. So she's up north. So that made it a little bit easier for her. Mm -hmm. It was possible that she's actually related to Frederick Douglass, which is interesting (gasps) because I think she just had that abolitionist blood. That's excellent. (laughs) As we see. So that's kind of cool. So her parents were actually freed slaves from North Carolina. And so they moved north before the war, actually, to just get away from all of that. Yep. Very smart. Very wise. She was the elder of two children, but her siblings sadly died young. Mm. So it was mostly, you know, she was raised mostly as an only child, but she was a devout Baptist. That's something that you see a lot in her story. That just keeps coming three. up. Three. Three of these yeah, women all were these devout. Baptists. Why are yes. we even surprised? We've got one Quaker and three Baptists. <laughs> so she went to actually an integrated school when she was 10, and that was what really started to inspire her to become a nurse. And of course, she couldn't go to the South for nursing school. No. She realized pretty early on that wasn't going to happen. So she ended up going to the New England Hospital for Women and Children. Okay, you just mentioned that's this? the yes. same one that Rebecca Crumpler went yes. to. So there's this connection with all these yes. gals, right? Yes. I love it. And it's interesting. She started uh, She started just going and hanging out there when she was only 18 just to serve as a cook and a maid there. Okay, so Rebecca Crumpler in her story, that institution actually was first for nurses. And just re- ah, there re- we go. right before Rebecca Crumpler went there, they started giving out medical degrees for ah, doctors. Okay, so there's a, yeah, there there's is definitely such a strong connection, connection here. Yes. And this is kind of cool. She just kind of served there, like I said, as a maid and a cook for 15 years. Wow. And so she wasn't able to go to school there. They wouldn't let her until she was 33. So oh for 15 goodness. years, she's just there serving. And it's interesting because they think that the only reason they let her become a student was because she'd been helping out for so many years. It's mm-hmm. kind of like, well, we owe her. Yes. <laughs> but it's like, hey, whatever it takes, these women were willing to do whatever it I took that. to follow that. the yes. goals and the the passion, the vision the Lord gave them. I know. And I think about how easily defeated we are. Yes. How little things trip oh us up. Oh my gosh. And yeah. these women are such... They're, they refuse to be victims. Yes. All these women just like, we're not victims. We're going to be victors. Yes. And I love that. Yeah. And you know, it was the relationship with the Lord it that was. gave him that perspective. There's no way they would have had that. That's yes, right. the perseverance. Yes. 
she would work 16-hour days, uh, including lecture time and all of that, like 5.30 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. I think maybe Elizabeth Blackwell or somebody else had yes, that kind of schedule yes. where it's I like, all of when do they did. sleep? It's grueling. Yes, it's <laughs> grueling. And so, uh, but she graduated as the first black nurse in America in 1879, so a couple years later, out of 40 students, only she and two white women uh, graduated. Wow. So, I mean, I mean, you know that there must have been a camaraderie there because yeah. they're all kind of going through and it together. And that coursework must have been difficult that oh, you've my only goodness. got three graduates. Absolutely. So she became mostly a private nurse, interestingly. So she worked a lot with wealthy white families. And she was known for being very professional and classy because they would often treat her as a servant, mm. not as a nurse with mm. experience right, right, and, right, you, know, right. you know, the academic right. aspect of it. They would just treat her as a servant. But she just handled it so classy. And she was known for just her skill, her preparedness, really admirable in how she conducted herself. She never married, but she spent a lot of time with her sister. Three of the yeah. four never married. Yeah. You know, a lot of these women, they, to devote themselves fully to what they right. did, they kind of had to do but that for a lot of them. isn't that incredible that they were willing to devote themselves to service? And mm. even, here's another sacrifice, right? Yes, another one, exactly. Mm-hmm. But I love that it says that she and her sister would just go spend all their free time at the Baptist church. They were just oh, there, so involved, so sweet. Yes. Like I said, she had that connection with Frederick Douglass. And so she was really big on abolitionist. Obviously, this was after the Civil War, but there's still this discrimination that she's pushing back on. You know, eventually we would call that probably the civil rights movement kind mm-hmm. of a thing that eventually emerged out of all this. But these are the very early years. I mean, we're talking, you know, she's pushing for women's suffrage as mm-hmm. well and really mm-hmm. speaking out for uh, all of these things and, and trying to make a place for Black women in nursing. And this actually, you know, like we talked about with these women, they've got the double whammy mm-hmm. of, of not yes. only being African-American, um, but also of being women. All of it. And there was so much—both of these things were pressing against them, yeah. and yet— Again, as we said before, they persevered. They really did. 1911, 1912, she was she became the director of Howard Colored Orphan Asylum mm. uh, for kids. And then she became an original member of the Nurses Associated Alumni, but that was mostly for white women. It said at some point they didn't want black women in there anymore. So she said, okay, fine, I'm going to start my own association Good. for colored nurses. For She's her. just like, okay, I'm going to just work with what I can. I'm going to do yes. what I can yes. dealing with these injustices. And so, again, she continued to be very active in civil rights and suffrage later in life. And then in 1923, she contracted breast cancer and died a couple years later in 1926. But what a remarkable woman. She is absolutely remarkable. Yes, absolutely. So we have yet another woman that just overcame, yes. became an overcomer and persevered. Right. I read about this woman, Charlotte Abbey. And you know what's really sad is I could not find anything on her. She had worked with Rebecca Cole because we talked about, I mean, it's it's great that we were able to find these women because they were almost obliterated from history because of the prejudice. Right. Even though they overcame, even though they got their education, even though they're brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, what I loved, and you know, we saw this with Harriet Tubman, we saw this with Sojourner Truth, and we saw this with, with some of the African-American women we've been looking at, that they had just this heart to help others. Which is crazy because it's very easy when you have suffered and life done you wrong to become very inward and very focused on yourself or bitter about what's happened to you. 
but instead to take that and say, I'm going to turn around and or, use this for others. Right. Or even say, look, I accomplished all this on my own. What are you yeah. doing? I mean, they could have even become prejudiced because of their brilliance, mm. because of what they accomplished through education. Mm. But I, I think that was, you know, partially, as we said, it was the Baptist and their love for the Lord that kept them humble. Also, mm. we we remember, too, that none of these women could support themselves yeah. because of the times that they were living in and how oppressed their community was. Yeah. And so they relied on um, the donations of these organizations and these institutions. And that's one of the reasons that they formed organizations is so that they could have money to put into the community. And that way, um, other believers could tithe to these organizations. Mm. And that's how most of these doctors survive. So, you know, today, going into medicine, becoming a doctor is considered a lucrative career. Mm. But for them, it was not a lucrative career. Everything was sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. And I think about all of them, with the exception of, I think, the nurse you just talked about, yeah. um, Rebecca Cole, died young. Yeah, I mean, I, I think of Rebecca Crumpler dying young because she was only in her 60s and I'm in my 60s and that just <laughs> That's seems young. So that is young. young. Um, but then especially Louise Fleming, who died at only 37 years old. Yeah, you know, sometimes burned themselves you, out. Yeah. Right. And sometimes when you read about somebody like that who was so full of potential, so brilliant, you're like, Lord, why did you take her so young? She could have done so much more. Mm, you know, yeah. but you realize that God had this specific time, this specific purpose Mm. for even Louise Celia Fleming's life. Yeah, for all of them, exactly. Mm -hmm. And like you said, they were, you know, doing so much of this pro bono, I guess we would say, or without much. In fact, that was something with Eliza Mahoney as well. I mean, the nursing program, their weekly wages were between $1 and $4. Mm. I I mean, I I can't even (laughs) imagine. I know back then, currency, you know, obviously it was different, but still it was hardly anything. And they were all struggling financially. This was not like a lucrative career that you were trying to go into. They knew there, it was a sacrifice on every level. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just, you know, the oppression and all that they were facing, but they also, you know, financially were struggling. And it's interesting, too, that you mentioned a few minutes ago Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth because they are actually listed. I found this article with, uh, you know, African-American women in the in medicine in history, and they actually honor Harriet Tubman as a nurse. We didn't even talk about that no. with her life. I know, it's scratching the surface there. We always think of the Underground Railroad. Right. But she was considered a capable nurse. It said she had a lot of natural remedies, herbal remedies that she knew about, and they actually looked to her for that reason, especially when she was out helping when she was helping the soldiers during the Civil War, she worked as a laundress and also as a nurse there. It's like, whoa, fun facts. I mean, so yeah. many things these women did that just never get known or talked about. Yeah. And the fact, too, as you brought up before, that they had to support themselves and make it through school. I mean, that's that's big, too. You think about your know, tuition. And how they provided for tuition also, too. Um, Rebecca Crumpler was able to, you know, live with her husband. But Rebecca Cole um, had to live on the campus. And, again, like her roommate remembering that one time she had to cross what she called the white line. Mm. Because they were trying to prevent her even from going to class. We remember with Elizabeth Blackwell, Blackwell. had the same problem. Yeah. Yeah. Where they tried to prevent her from going to class. So, again, it is just so— notable, you know, the brilliance of these women, the perseverance of these women, the kindness Mm -hmm. and um, 
I want to say, but I don't think it's a word, but I'm going to use a new word, charitableness. <laughs> Charitability? I don't, yeah. <laughs> Chari- anyway, they were so charitable. Yes, they were. Absolutely. And and that willingness to risk themselves. You mm-hmm. know, there was another gal, a black nurse, who came after, obviously, Eliza, and her name was Susie King Taylor, and she went during the Civil War and would go and, and you know, risk her life, basically, to go and try to give medical aid to Union Army soldiers. At one point, there was a smallpox epidemic, and that is so dangerous. Right. For those of us who know anything mm-hmm. with history, like, what, 90% of the Native American population right. died from smallpox? Right. I mean, very, very deadly. But she would actually, while guys were quarantined mm-hmm. away from everybody because of the smallpox, she would sneak in to try to help them mm-hmm. and treat them. She mm-hmm. just didn't give any thought mm-hmm. to her own safety and her own health. And so, you know, coming back to what you're saying about the compassion and just that kindness and desire to help at all costs, it's just so rare. And you really don't have that apart from, I don't think apart from a relationship with Jesus, you can't get to that level of compassion and care. <laughs> you know, I agree. As I was, I was going on the internet and I was just looking like, have we, you know, have we done enough doctors? Are there, are there more <laughs> doctors who were Christians and who served? And that's when I came across Rebecca Cole. And then when I found out she worked with Elizabeth Blackwell, oh, I was yeah. like, what? This is so <laughs> exciting. And it says, but she wasn't the first. Rebecca Crumpler was the first. So I went to <laughs> Rebecca Crumpler and, you know, again, there aren't very many books on any of these women. No. Most yeah. of, you know, what we're using right now is just we've gone from article to article to article yeah. on uh, the internet. The book by Rebecca Crumpler is no longer available. Mm. And so, I mean, if you have it, it's worth like thousands Gold. of oh, dollars. Yeah. One of those know? rare books. But through these internet articles, I got so excited. In fact, I kept, you know, as you know, Jasmine, I kept <laughs> forwarding so many of these articles to Jasmine because I got so excited because this is such an untapped reservoir of church history, really, really. women and church yeah. history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. even the history of the United States. Totally. You yeah. know, that these women, you know, they're they're one of us, mm-hmm. you know? And they went against all these odds and they— they worked hard. They were brilliant, and they sought to serve mm-hmm. all of them. And I was thinking about how, you know, today I was reading about King Saul, and with all of his brilliance, and when he became king, he started using everything that God had given for himself. Yeah. And these women took their intelligence and their skill, and they gave it back to the Lord, mm-hmm. and they sought how to serve the Lord. And that's why I think they're women worth knowing. Oh, absolutely. We're glad you know about them now, too. So if you have a woman that you want to send us in, we would like to highlight a woman worth knowing that you know of, someone who's ministered in some capacity in your life. And if you'd send that to us at WWK at CCCM.com, that's the email address, or you can also go on uh, women.cccm.com and you'll find a link there where you can comment or write in to us as well. Mm-hmm. And remember to like us on whatever app you're using for (laughs) this podcast. Thanks for joining us today. And until we come back with another woman worth knowing, this is Cheryl and Jasmine saying bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett.